You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. If you mention the word separatism, you'll likely get some strong reactions. But what does it really mean from a radical feminist perspective? Susan Hawthorne is co-founder of Spinifex Press, an independent feminist press in Melbourne, Australia, and author of two novels, nine collections of poetry, four nonfiction books, and many other publications. She first published In Defense of Separatism in 1976 as an honors thesis and decided to revisit the subject, publishing it as a book in 2019, considering the revived debate around women's spaces. I spoke with her over the phone about the book and her analysis of women's oppression yesterday and today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Um... So tell me a bit about why you decided to write a book on separatism. Well, I first started the book as an honours thesis when I was studying philosophy back in 1976. And I had decided to, to write about this towards the end of 1975. I'd been a feminist for a couple of years and I'd changed my life uh, to decide to be a lesbian about a a bit over a year earlier. And so I was very um, passionately engaged in lots of conversations uh, with with other women. We were all um, deeply involved in what was called at the time the women's liberation movement. Uh, I had also joined um, the Rape Crisis Centre where I volunteered once a week, I joined various other uh, feminist organisations. I volunteered at the Women's Centre and Halfway House for a very short time where women came who were uh, running away from violent husbands. So there were lots of things going on around. And the subject of separatism was one that I had not uh, seen much written about. I had seen read some essays but not very many, but it was hotly, hotly discussed between us. And I thought, well, maybe I could try that. I was 24 um, and it was probably, it was the first really long piece of writing that I ever did. And then last year, 2019, uh, when uh, the the debate really started again uh, over women's spaces and whether it was okay for women to have spaces that were there for biological women. Um, And so I thought, well, maybe it's time to get it out there. Now, basically, the the book is fairly uh, fairly close to the original. Of course, I fixed things that needed fixing, which is the sort of thing that any editor would do. And then I added a foreword and an afterword and a few footnotes throughout that allow people to see how things have changed or whether on one or two instances I've changed my mind about a particular issue that I write about. Uh, so um, I thought, well, it's time now to start talking about separatism again. And I was unable to get it published anywhere. 
in the intervening, and what is it, 40 years or so. <laughs> so, so what's changed since, um, what was it, 76 that you, that you originally wrote this? Um, what's changed since then, um, you know, in general, but also that led you to feel like you needed to publish this, this text now? Well, one of the biggest things that's changed is uh, that if you use the word woman, um, you're called a transphobe. Um, and just talking about um, women having their own spaces for their own purposes, their own political purposes, uh, is seen as a dreadful, bigoted thing to do. Uh, and it's really interesting because... When other groups uh, who are oppressed in whatever way on the basis of class or racism or whether they are oppressed because there are different um, groups fighting one another in a particular country or so forth and one has more power than the other, the, the, the people with the least power are never criticised for getting together to talk, to strategize to affirm one another, uh, to be able to see their way politically. But when women do it, it is seen as something terrible and bigoted. Uh, and I think that the big difference is that women are expected to love men. Whether women love men <laughs> is another matter, but there is an expectation. And, of course, there are people in all sorts of other positions, whether it's class or race or ethnicity or religion or whatever, who love one another across those boundaries. Uh, but it isn't, it isn't an expectation. And that, I think, is the critical difference. I wonder what you see um, as being different in terms of the women's movement today. I mean, I often sort of get a bit... Uh, depressed about the state of feminism these days, um, partly because it seems to me that young women don't really see sex-based oppression or sexism as very important or even real. Um, well, I get depressed too. Um, I also get angry um, <laughs> because, because I think the, the, the foundation on which feminism as it's usually understood um, is seen has changed. When when I was coming into feminism, there nearly everybody in the feminist movement had some kind of understanding of Marxism. Now, the good thing about Marxism, I mean, Marxism certainly has its limits, um, but the good thing about Marxism is that it's a structural analysis uh, and that means that the structures of power, the different ways in which people are oppressed, all those sorts of things are deeply embedded in that analysis. And we saw lots of wars of independence of people. We saw the civil rights movement uh, in the US. We saw similar Aboriginal movements in Australia for land rights, those sorts of things. Uh, but these days, an awful lot of feminism is based on what I would call neoliberal libertarianism, um, which is so terribly individualistic uh, that it makes it really 
difficult to have a structural analysis because it's me, 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 me. I mean, even though I think I think the Me Too movement is very important, I don't like the hashtag. Um, I think Black Lives Matter is way better because there's a sort of collective um, sense there rather than the individual. And and I think those those differences really change the way in which feminism is talked about uh, and, and, and the ways in which women coming newly to feminism understand it. So if you don't understand a structural analysis, you never quite see yourself as a collective. You never see yourself as having a commonality with other women, no matter where they are from. Or who they are. Hmm. And I wonder if you can talk more about what a structural analysis of sexism and patriarchy would look like for people who, you know, maybe those terms are new to them. Um, they and you know they don't know what that means. What what does structural mean? Well, the first thing about a structural analysis is trying to work out where the power lies. Um, and, and an important part of that is trying to see the different kinds of power uh, that operate to, to create oppression. Uh, and it is clear to me that women are oppressed. So I, that's my foundation. Um, now, men in a patriarchal society have access to way more power. They also have the ability to use much more of that power and to use it more often. Uh, and I think that is behind uh, the the kind of uh, epidemic of um, killing, murder of women that we're seeing all around the world now. It is uh, the fact that women are killed so uh, frequently um, is uh, an example of structural power. At the other end of that's a very strong form of power and it's the kind of power, I, I, I call it coercive power, and it's very similar to what's being talked about in domestic violence circles these days as coercive control. Uh, and, I mean, coercive power is is the sort that can include, it doesn't actually have to include um physical violence it might include a deprivation of feel uh, of of freedom it might mean that a woman is uh, stopped from having friendships with other women or her spent money the way she spends money is closely observed and controlled uh, and the sort of emotional support that women get from one another is forbidden so those sorts of things come into coercive control and coercive power is that very strong form of power. As I, I was about to say before, at the other end is is what is called persuasive power. Uh, persuasive power. Persuasive power is the shift in attitudes that takes well, you know, takes generations sometimes. And I certainly had expected that by now the world would be in a better place than it was back when in 1976. But the good thing about persuasive power or the shift in attitude is it's very stable unlike coercive power which is strong and unstable persuasive power is really really stable once a change has happened 
it's actually quite hard to shift back. And we saw this with the um, the quit campaign, quit smoking campaign. Somehow they are able to put out a program like that and, and make a, a shift in the attitude. I mean, there should be, uh, I wrote about having a quit porn um, campaign some years ago, but the powers that be don't seem to think that that's a useful thing to do, although many many of us feminists do. Um, so, um, so a structural analysis includes uh, different ways of talking about power, social power, political power, uh, physical and various other kinds of power uh, in the society, and then looking to see where you stand in that. Uh, and every, every, all of us stand in a slightly different position, but what we need to be able to do is to see where there are others who stand in a similar position who we can work together with. And that's where the importance of collective um, power comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think sexism manifests itself today, perhaps differently than it did during the second wave? Or, I mean, do you see, do you see much as having, having changed since then? There have been a lot of, superficial changes uh i use in in the in my piece i use the example of mrs jim brown and my mother used my father's name as as a a way of identifying herself sometimes but she she was actually a pretty pretty uh, strong feminist but because of the way in which certain things were accepted she was often known as mrs hugh hawthorne um and that's something that has really changed. Uh, another thing that has changed is uh, women rarely wear stockings these days and nearly all wear flat shoes. Now, that was a no-no <laughs> when I was 24. Um, even I toppled around in some platform shoes before I became a feminist. Um, so, and I know some women still do it, but it is nowhere near as um, common as it used to be. So that's what I mean. Lots of superficial things have changed. Another thing that has changed is that particularly among younger men um, of a progressive mind, let's call it, uh, it's much more likely that they will involve themselves in childcare. Whether they involve themselves in housework is another matter. That seems to be less attractive. Um, But some are, are, are going there. So that those sorts of things are important and they were unlikely back in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. But sexism in itself hasn't changed. <laughs> in some ways it's gotten worse. I, we used to use the word sexism more frequently and now I think we use the word misogyny more frequently because I think misogyny has become so obvious uh, and so rampant and and is probably exacerbated by social media mm-hmm. and pornography. <laughs> pornography, yeah. I mean, when people ask me about sexism and misogyny today and, and where we can see it, I mean, to me, one of the most obvious places to look to see how normalised you know, violence against women, women is and, and degradation and exploitation is in pornography and, and prostitution. 
Mm. Yes, and, and that comes through in the kinds of advertising that is public um, and the level of violence portrayed in pornography and the level of violence um, enacted against uh, women in the sex trade. Uh, so I think in some ways it has escalated um, in particular areas, but also in the uh, in the area of um, violence against women uh, living with men. And the the numbers of women who are killed internationally is terrifying. And if any other group were being killed, well, actually I suppose um, also. Um, black people all around the world are also being killed in vast numbers. But the important thing is that women are not <laughs> are not seen in the same way, and it's very um, it's very concerning that that's the case. That that violence against women is still minimised. It's still seen almost as normal, almost as expected. It does seem like it's really erased and invisibilized, you know, the way that so many women are killed every day all around the world, so often, as you say, in situations of domestic violence, so killed by their boyfriends, husbands, partners, and, you know, people don't really seem to talk about it all that much. Um, yes, people don't talk about it, but the women in many countries are counting and that also has shifted that in, in Australia uh, at least one woman a week is killed, uh, sometimes more. Uh, and the kind of... Uh, recently there was a woman here who had petrol thrown over her, her and all her children uh, in the car and uh, they were incinerated. Um, you know, it's just... I, I've... I find it difficult to think about. I um, I have to think about it in the same way that we have to think about violence against Indigenous peoples, uh, violence against black people, racism um, in the moment, particularly against Chinese people, people of Chinese heritage. So uh, there are, you know, these things are just very hard to deal with but we have to and it's political and it's structural uh, and it is pushed by uh, the people who have enormous resources and the people who have a big say in the media like Mr Trump and others mm -hmm. and our own Prime Minister for that matter. <laughs> right. Um, so let's talk about separatism. Um, first of all what does that mean? I mean, is it is it literally separating oneself entirely from men? Um, is it about building communities? What what does what does the term separatism mean? It means a number of different things. At the at the least strong form of separatism um, would be women who get together, say, in a book club. Uh, but I. I probably wouldn't call it separatism in the same way as I wouldn't call women playing tennis or golf together is separatism, but it is it is kind of on its way because it's an important kind of emotional support that women give one another. But for it to be separatism, I think it has to have a political basis of some sort, even if it's 
a, a small amount of politics like we're going to get together and we're going to read this book and we're going to talk about it and we're going to uh, support one another in our political analyses. Those, that, that would then, for me, move into a form of weak separatism. But there are other other forms of separatism are getting together in activist groups, uh, becoming involved in um, uh, um, groups fighting against rape, um, groups fighting um, pornography and prostitution, um, running a magazine um, where all the writers or nearly all the writers are women, uh, running a publishing house such as I do, where again nearly all the writers are women, um, and prioritising uh, the, the women's voices. So they would count as, as separatism. When I was writing the book, there was a movement that had just started in Australia of women buying land and moving to the country and creating what were called women's lands. And in Australia, there was Amazon Acres, there was the women's land and there was her land. And they were all based in northern New South Wales. So for me, they would be a very strong form of separatism where those women separated themselves um, almost completely uh, from men and actually from many other women as well and lived a life that was completely um, uh, focused on them and their needs and finding new ways of living. They were very important inspirational forms of separatism and in between lie a whole lot of other, uh, uh, other kinds of separatism. So separatism has its many faces and the, one of the, I think one of the important things is that often people confuse uh, separatism and segregation and the, the important thing, there was a great article that I used by Luciana Valesca <coughs> in which she writes about how the two are different and separatism is uh, a political um, action in which the people who are oppressed separate themselves out in order to become stronger, to become more politically engaged, all those sorts of things. Segregation, however, is, is a force of domination from above in which people are forcibly segregated from others, as we saw in the southern states of um, the USA, as we saw under South Africa in a, under apartheid and that was still existing, as we saw in Australia um, very often with um, Aboriginal people separated out in communities where they were segregated from the rest of the world. Same, I think, happened in Canada and other places where Indigenous people have been colonised. So um, segregation, I mean, it was political will that put that there and it's politics that will change it and that politics is a politics of separatism. And I think in some ways um, you see it in, in Canada with um, the Québécois, you know, the people in Montreal have had a separatist movement there um, and while uh, it didn't go through, there were nevertheless important political issues that, that were being discussed um, by Quebecois that dis distinguished them from the English-speaking majority of um, Canada. Mm. And I, I suppose one of the main questions that's posed around separatism when it comes up is whether or not it 
could be a viable solution or or challenge to patriarchy considering the amount of heterosexual men in the world and so meaning that of course lots and lots of women are always going to partner with men or and want to be around men whether they're their family members or friends or or boyfriends or husbands or whatever well in a way this is a sort of version of um the argument against separatism that assumes that separatism is a final goal. Uh, it's not going to be. Um, there are no separatists, I think, who, who, um, not of, let's say, the radical lesbian feminist kind, um, who would say that it is a goal because if you go that far, you move into um, the, the scope of fascism. So separatism is not a goal. But separatism is, or the analysis that I put forward, is based on the idea that people can change. Women can change. We've seen that because women have changed massively uh, in, in many different ways over the years. The problem we now have is, are men going to change? And I was thinking, actually, just last week, seeing um, the riots in um, in the US over George Floyd's um, killing, that men have so much work to do. White men particularly have so very much work to do on themselves. And I think that that should become a, you know, political <laughs> goal for some party if they could ever manage it, that men need to do the the kind of work on themselves that women have done on ourselves uh, and with you, because the thing about liberation is that you, you can't liberate somebody people have to liberate themselves it, it has to be something that uh, people do in order to free themselves from the bonds of, of oppression and Paulo Freire's work um, that, that he did in the 1970s is just fantastic on this and he's working with pe peasants and other people um, who are oppressed in 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 uh, Latin America and it is it is really brilliant work and Franz Fanon did stuff too that was good the only shortcoming both of them is they don't talk about women nevertheless you can learn things from other people <laughs> and I mean what kinds of specifics like say you know there's there's men who are listening um what would you say i mean where where do men start in terms of making these changes what kinds of changes are we talking about well one very small change that men could start to do is to call out other men when they say things um that are sexist or misogynist or uh, where they they make rape jokes or they make jokes about women's bodies, men need to start calling out other men. And I know it's hard um, because it's hard to do that. It's hard to talk against your friends, your colleagues, and particularly within masculine culture, it is very hard because you might be punished. So you have to start, but you have to start doing it because if you don't start doing it, it will never happen. Uh, women, when when the feminist movement was rife in the 1970s, one of the things we did was we had consciousness raising 
Now, consciousness raising groups were fabulous, fabulous inventions. Um, and what that enabled us to do was we got together. We didn't necessarily know the people, uh, the other women we were talking with uh, when we first started, but boy, by the end, we knew a lot uh, about one another. It was a very supportive group, but people would challenge one another now and then, but it enabled us to speak our experience and discover that actually our what looked like our own personal experience was something that we shared. And that's where the structural analysis comes back in. Um, and that for me was, I think, probably the most important thing I ever did in terms of um, coming to understand how society worked. Men could start setting up consciousness raising groups. Some men did also did it in the 1970s. Although I heard from people who were partners of some of those men that they almost came to fisticuffs so they still had some distance to go in terms of undoing their uh, social conditioning but you know that's just the starting point I, I, I can't tell men what to do they need to figure it out for themselves uh, and that those couple of things are a good starting point and another thing would be to start reading feminist books. Uh, lots of politicians have never read a book by a feminist, which I find truly amazing. Some of them have never read a book by a woman since they were five years old. It's actually a really interesting experiment um, to ask men um, who's their favourite uh, writer and who's their favourite woman writer and what was the last book that they read by a woman. Uh, and you know you you get a lot you get a lot of understanding about where men are coming from when you ask that question men could perhaps ask one another that question as well and perhaps start having book clubs to talk about writing by women or something similar you know whatever their passion is films by made by women theater produced and directed by women who knows you know the the, the world is your oyster and do you think that it's realistic to expect men to change? I do, because I mean, humans can change. Uh, there is nothing in our biology that says that if you have a Y chromosome, you can't change. You actually need to learn uh, how to behave like, like a decent human being, like a woman, perhaps. <laughs> um. You write about heterosexuality in, in the book um, on separatism. Um, and you write about heterosexuality as an oppressive relationship for women. Um, I wonder if you think it's possible for heterosexuality to be to not be oppressive for women. Um, I do say in the book that it is possible, but I say that it's extremely um, rare um, and that both, uh, both people in the relationship really need to work hard to do it, particularly the man, because he needs to uh, rejig his socialisation um, perhaps. Um, and I think that if, if a heterosexual relationship is built on mutual respect, 
very deep mutual respect, then yes, it can be fine. Um, but the difficulty is that men, in a patriarchy, structurally speaking, men still have access to an awful lot of power. So they have to throw off that. They have to intentionally stop using um, their access to power. Uh, and it's a hard thing to do. It can be done because men can change. But men, as I keep saying, have to do it for themselves. And they should not rely on the woman to tell them how to change. I wonder if you can talk about the the connection between lesbian feminism and separatism. Well, I think the important thing is that it's it's quite possible and quite easy for lesbians to be horrible people. I've met some of them. Um, and um, so it's not a given <laughs> that lesbian, just as it's not a given that heterosexual relationships are doomed, it is also not a given that um, lesbian relationships are a kind of paradise. However, uh, because of the um, uh, the less likelihood of power differences given by patriarchy um, are, are there, the chances are better. Of course, if there are differences uh, in terms of race or class or um, a whole range of other things, uh, then the, those power dynamics can play out in those areas. So, um, I, but I think in terms of um, a feminist movement, a lesbian relationship allows you to not have to separate your political work from your personal life. And I certainly noticed this when I made the change um, back in 1974. I no longer had to defend myself at home all the time about what I was doing. Um, I no longer had um, horrible looks and arguments from um male friends and their female partners coming at me and saying, oh, you're just a man-hater and things like that, you know. Um, and while it's perhaps uh, um, possible to become a little complacent in a lesbian relationship, I also think that if, if, if both partners are politically engaged, then I hope that they, they notice things like that. You know, there, there are no guarantees. There are never guarantees. But what you can say is is that a lesbian relationship opens, opens doors in ways that um, a heterosexual relationship often slams them shut. And and you, you do notice this in terms of who who is uh, very engaged in activism. Uh, the Rape Crisis Centre in Melbourne in 1974 was started by lesbians. The Halfway House was started by lesbians. Um, the Women's Liberation Centre was started not by lesbians but by working-class migrant women over 40. So, you know, that was another kind of underclass in a way in the same way that lesbians are an underclass. So the, the people who are um, most uh, engaged in having to uh, create the, their own lives are the ones most, most likely to set up these uh, organisations as well and be at the forefront um, of of feminist change, and I think we still see that. We still see that in the women's movement now. Uh, lots of lots of lesbians are, are very very passionately engaged in 
moving feminism along, in um, uh, creating change within the society, the broader society, as well as in our own in our own lives. And when you talk about making the change, are you talking about you know what's what's often referred to as political lesbianism? No, um, I be, no. Uh, however, I'm quite happy that um, that women who don't have intimate relationships with anyone, um, I have no problem if they call themselves lesbians. Um, it's really a matter of where their energies are directed. Um, not everybody wants an intimate relationship, um, and I, it's quite possible to be. Um, uh, a woman on her own and still be where she considers herself a a heterosexual woman it is also possible for a woman on her own or without an intimate relationship to see herself as a lesbian Um, and we didn't have that distinction back then in fact we thought being a political lesbian was a good thing if we could convert um, you know, some of those singles out there to become political lesbians, that would be a good thing. Um, so the, for me, I, fi- I find it a bit difficult to talk about because the, the meaning has changed so much and these days a political lesbian is looked down upon by uh, purists, um, purist lesbians who think that you have to have had an intimate relationship with with a woman in order to be a lesbian. I don't think that's necessary. It possibly helps at some some level, but it's not necessary. Um, are there separatist movements alive today? Um, do you see separatist communities forming anywhere in the world? Um, I have heard of, I read about one in um, somewhere in India, I can't quite remember, and the women... Um, were uh, going off, they were reclaiming land that had been unused for a long time, they were planting crops, they were feeding themselves, they were running themselves as a community. I have also seen a TV program about a village in Kenya where all the women um, who had been raped by British forces were... um, pushed out of their homes by the men and they decided to set up their own community. Now, the women's village was fantastic. It had great education. Uh, The houses were lovely. They, you know, they were, it was a really um, well-organised, supportive community. The men who had booted their wives out now wanted them to come back because their village was falling apart. Their houses were falling down. They didn't have proper water uh, service. You know, all sorts of things were falling apart. So it's interesting that that's where I see the separatist communities emerging, not in the West. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems to be my impression too. And I know in, in South Korea, for example, there's a movement of, of young women who are refusing to marry, um, to date, to, to have sex with, to have babies with, with men. I expect it probably happening in lots of places, but we don't know about it. That's the other thing. Um, and, you know, I, I know, you know, there are young lesbians in Australia who would love to be part of such a community, but 
there's not a movement now um, to generate that. Whereas when I was, you know, in my mid-20s, there was a movement uh, and that you could join and be part of that. And that that has, has changed. But, you know, it could come back again, I think. Let's inspire it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so what are you working on nowadays? Um, well, I've almost finished my next book, which is called Vortex, the crisis of patriarchy um and in lots of ways it is um it's it's an extension of my well it's really it's my thinking over the last 45 50 years about feminist politics and i deal with globalization i deal with disability and prostitution and pornography i talk about biocolonialism i talk about torture of lesbians um, I talk about the, the trans um, erasure of biology and then I also talk about what I call climate catastrophe and um, I haven't quite finished the chapter, the positive one at the end, um, but in, in that I want to talk about um, sovereignty and the spirit of nature. So it's a, it's a kind of... Um, uh, a book, a, a chapter in which I want to try and bring some of the positive ideas together, although the, the first chapters are much more critical and much um, quite quite heavy-going critiques of all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I hope to be out either late this year or early 2021. Depends how quickly the editing goes. <laughs> Great. Well, do keep me in the loop as to when it comes out. I'd love to check it out. Okay, well, look, it's been a great pleasure to talk with you, Megan. And, you know, I, I read your posts every week and I, you know, look at what you do. It's really fantastic. So it's it's been a great honor and pleasure to speak with you. Uh, likewise, I'm really, I'm really happy we got a chance to talk and I'm so appreciative, appreciative of your, your work. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks a lot, Megan. Bye. Okay, bye. You just heard an interview with Susan Hawthorne, co-founder of SpinFX Press, author and adjunct professor in the writing program at James Cook University, Townsville. In Defense of Separatism was published in 2019 by SpinFX Press. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, B.C. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.